The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, what a sweet thing it is that you just gave us the chance to stand together and sing together to you, our Father. To call you Father, to call you Dad. What a privilege. The last verse of that song, you you have done a work to reconcile us to yourself. You have done a work to make us your children. You have done a work to give us the privilege to talk to you as our dad, which makes us all together your children, your family. Something you've made, you've adopted us in one by one over years in different ways, but you've drawn us together, and now we collectively sit in front of you and say, Father, would you now draw near to nourish us? Will you feed us? And this morning, will you do that through your word, by the power of your spirit, and cause us to understand a little bit more about what that means, that you are our Father, and we're your people, and we are a family. Help us to think about that well, to understand it, and to be moved by it. Well, we look to you for this, though the words are clear to us, we understand the English words, we We also reckon that there are things you would want to teach us to grow in us depth of understanding, so please do that. Take familiar concepts here and make them fresh and build us up to your honor and for our good. Thank you, Father. Build up your people. Honor Jesus. Thank you. Amen. What comes to your mind when you hear the word family? Probably for most of us, we think of our blood relatives or those joined to us by marriage or by adoption. And we probably use words like our nuclear family or our extended family or biological family. And those, those terms, those words, having just come through the holidays, maybe they also carry with it some feeling of what just happened, how we just encountered our family. Maybe it was sweetness or, or Maybe a bit of longing for those who weren't able to be there. Maybe there was some awkwardness, maybe even some sorrow. But whatever our actual experience of family, we all have a pretty good idea of what a family should be, how a family should function. You hear an athlete interviewed, and, and the athlete says, This team is my family. Or a soldier describes his unit as a band of brothers. And we understand what's meant. We, we get it right away. We know that, what, that, that group, that team, that unit, it does what families do or supposed to do. There is love and there is sacrifice there for the other, for the whole, rather than just for self. There is accountability and encouragement and responsibility and truth and trust, and freedom to be honest, and unity around purpose. That's what a family is supposed to be like. And and we know that. We feel it. We want it. 
That's what the church is supposed to be like. Similar, by God's design. God made families because he meant to make the church, and he wanted us to have some sort of, some sort of connection, that there would be some way that it would resonate within us. The church as a family is one of the main ways that God gives us, that tells us to think about the collective people of God. There are other analogies. There, there's the analogy of the, the kingdom. There's the analogy of, of the body. But family is different. It carries some things in it. It's how we're supposed to think of ourselves as the collective people of God and then as individuals in that people. And that idea, that's the starting place for the book of Philemon, to which we turn this morning. Philemon is a very short letter written by the Apostle Paul. Most likely at the same time he wrote the letter we call the book of Colossians, which we just finished studying a little bit ago. You'll notice there's a lot of overlap in, in names and in ideas, abbreviated in Philemon because of its length and also because of its particular focus. This is a letter written by an individual to another individual about a personal matter, primarily. And it isn't heavily theological at all. At least that's how it looks on the surface. You come to this letter and you think, this is one guy writing to another guy about a personal matter and there's no theology here at all. So it seems on the surface. Paul wrote the Colossian letter to the church as a whole and it's packed with theology. And he sent it to that church along with, you recall we saw this at the very end of, of Colossians, along with two model messengers, one named Tychicus and another named Onesipus, who he describes as a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, and who also, though unstated there, known to everybody, Onesimus also was a slave belonging to this guy Philemon. Paul sent him back with Tychicus, carrying the corporate theological letter called Colossians and the shorter personal private letter called Philemon. We call it Philemon. We're going to leave the contents of this personal letter later when we come to them because I think it's probably helpful for us to just sort of take it as it comes. Now, can't totally do that because we all know that there's something in here about slavery, but let's pretend for a little bit that we don't know that yet. And let's just take it as it comes, as it would have come to Philemon, and that leaves us free to read the introduction and to to deal with the, the opening paragraphs and see the, the frame that Paul is building here before we come to the topic. And what we see, if we look at it that way, it leaves us kind of, kind of free from assumptions and free from distractions. What we see there is that it starts with something that's maybe going to feel rather ordinary to us and, and pretty familiar. It starts with a focus on the church as family. And, and I, as I wrote this sermon and thought about this sermon, I kind of thought, it's, it's possible that for a lot of us, this sermon will feel a lot like, well, sure, yeah, uh-huh. And that's part of the beauty of the setup. Because if you get this, I think something about the topic pops when we come to it. This is, uh-huh, yeah, basic. 
church is a family. God's family. If we get that, it'll put the whole rest of the topic, as well as, I think, ramifications for other related issues, it'll kind of put them in a, in a perspective that'll make it all seem really clear and really obvious. And cleverly, deeply theological. Church is family. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Let me read the first seven verses and then I'll make two observations. This is the book of Philemon. Notice there's no chapter reference because it's all one big chapter. So this is just verses one to seven. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. I'll stop there. First seven verses, I'm going to make two observations. Here's the first. The church is a unified family formed, loved, and cared for by God. The church is a unified family formed, loved, and cared for by God. As usual, Paul writes and uses the standard letter format of, of that day, but he, as always, takes it and, and begins to turn it and use it to teach us and prepare for where he's going in the letter. So we need to pay attention to this. And, and when we do, what we see here in the opening and the opening paragraph is something that is here and, and continues throughout the rest of the letter, an unusual concentration of unity and togetherness and especially family language. So watch for that. That's our first point. Here's from Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. That right away is different. Paul often describes himself as a servant of Christ and very often an apostle of Christ to emphasize his authority, the, the right, the standing to say, thus saith the Lord. Well, this is pushing in exactly the opposite direction. It's not putting him above, it's putting him below. He's emphasizing lowliness. I'm, I'm a prisoner. From Paul and Timothy, our brother, who is, again, often a co-author with Paul, but that's a little unexpected in a personal letter. And it's to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Philemon is known to Paul and loved, at least by Paul, but he probably means by everybody, probably even means beloved by God. The following paragraph reiterates that Philemon is involved in active ministry in the church, the the hearts of the saints are refreshed through him. The church meets in his house, so maybe he's the patron, maybe he's the host of the church. He probably isn't the primary leader like the pastor. That's probably Archippus, who's given a different title. He's a fellow soldier, a, a kind of a more a stronger term, kind of implying a, a stronger ministry commitment. He's probably an official minister of some sort. But really, we don't 
exactly know what Philemon and Archippus did do in the ministry. Fellow worker, fellow soldier. We also don't know anything about Apphia, our sister. Some think maybe she was Philemon's wife. Maybe. Probably not. Because the church meets in his house, not their house. The language is singular. So we don't know. We don't know who she is. We don't know exactly what Philemon and Archippus did. But really the point is that they are mentioned and along with the whole church mentioned and then how it is they're mentioned, how they're described. This is Brother Timothy and Sister Apphia, our fellow this, our fellow that. The beginning of this shapes we are an us. We are an us. We belong with and to each other, my brother. Paul calls him that explicitly in verse 7 and again in verse 20 later, as we'll see. So I'm, I'm your brother also, realize, if you're my brother, if she's my sister, then I'm your brother. I'm not just an apostle. I'm in this family too. All of us are an us beneath God our Father, verse 3. And also, in fact, beneath the Lord Jesus. The terminology should remind us of Colossians. If you remember, it was read this morning, Colossians, the end of 3 and the beginning of 4, that talks about here is the household of God with one Lord over it. Remember, not, the Lord's not the husband, the Lord's not the father, the Lord's not the master, the Lord is the Lord Jesus. He is the Lord of the house, set here on parallel with the father of the house, because God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are over the family. We've got one head, and then all of the rest of us are in us, brothers and sisters, and we belong to each other. We are our, that's, that's the word he uses, it's appropriate to call one another our fellow laborers. The family that God has gathered around him beneath one God and Father. It is not, let me say this carefully, not a literal, physical, biological family of God. We don't come from him in a, in a literal begetting sense. Which is why the Bible always talks about us being included in the family as being adopted, trying to emphasize we don't actually have a biological connection to God or to each other. We are adopted into the family of God. That's how God brings us in. So being human, being born as a human does not make you a member of the family of God. Being born a second time, being born spiritually, is how God adopts us into his family. In other words, when we become a Christian, that's how you become a member of the family of God. Not by being a human, by being a Christian. We are spiritually born into a spiritual family, which is a deliberately chosen analogy. 
because we all can easily understand what that's supposed to be like. Even in this fallen world, we all have a basic awareness of what a good and right family is like. We, we never actually get it fully. We never experience it completely. And even when you get little pieces of it, it always runs away. You can have those, those moments when if you've got a, a perfect and, and right and sweet moment of family unity and togetherness, you, you know it's going to end when everybody gets in the car and drives home or moves across the country or passes away. We, ha- we have an idea of family, but we never are able to reach it all. And, and frankly, many of us experience much more brokenness than wholeness and much more sorrow than sweetness in family. But we all have an idea. We're all, we're all left with, with an understanding. This is not, but what would it be? This, this is... It's passed away, but if, what if we could hold on to it? There is a, there is a desire, a, a dream, a sweet idea in every human. What if we had family in which there was this love and this sacrifice and this commitment and this openness and this devotion, this commitment to truth and this, this acceptance of one another? And what if it never ended but in fact grew and spread and it, and it just was a, a kind of a water we could rest in and a strength that would drive us forward. Family. What, and what if that was not just my, my own little tribe, but what if that's what, 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 if, what if that was what humanity was like? There's a longing in people. A human yearning for Community. That's the word we use now, kind of the buzzword, community. But what we really mean by that is, what if people worked like like that family that I was describing? What if we loved one another like that? It's a pipe dream, because it's not real. But what if that, that, that yearning, that longing is in all of us? We want something like that. In, in the best of all senses, a, a people, a group that would never end but would grow and spread and last. And God placed that in us and gave us little tastes of it and, and also the absence of it. He, he created that in us to create a, a kind of a, of a resonance so that when we meet something that, like, oh, that matches. Oh, yeah. He, he made that in us because he intended then to form that by the gospel, by the sacrifice of his own son. And to offer then to us through faith in that son, crucified and risen, to say to us, that thing that you sense, that, you, that you're missing, that you kind of have a dream and idea about, here it is. I made it. The family of God, come and join it by faith. Here's the family, the unified community that, that you've, you've, it's the shadow you've been chasing. It's the idea that you've, that you've thought of but never been able to put your hand on. Here it is. Come already, growing, spreading, coming to full fruition, and it's going to last forever. It's the family of God. It's what you, you didn't know this, but it's what you've always known. You don't think you want it, but it's really what you want. This family, this people. And I made it. 
come. And like any good parent, like any good father, he made it and he loves and cares for it deeply. The Lord of the house died for this family. He died to make it. And he dies to sustain it. And he's been raised now to pour out on it grace and peace. So verse 3 reminds us of grace and peace, not just in the past, but every day. Grace and peace and grace and peace and grace and peace. God, the head of the house, pouring out on his children, his family, grace and peace. The great blessing of God. Grace. In any and every way you can think of it. All that we need and all that we will ever need. All of his riches and all of his promises and all of his care and all of his power and all of his wisdom. God is a great and amazing God who can answer every one of those needs just exactly correctly in the proper time. And he's promised, that's what I do for you day by day by day by day. You stand in that grace. You cannot be moved from it. That's because I made peace with you and you're mine. And I'm a good father. I care for my kids. So grace to you. And that means you should say, I'm at peace. He, he made peace, and so that means to, today and tomorrow and the next day to pour out on us peace. That is the subjective experience of peace. Rest. This is what God is. God is a God is a a powerful, wise God who made a family and then a gracious and merciful God who cares for a family and provides for it day after day after day, given to you. Christian, this is your reality. This is who you are. You are a member of a family. You are a son, a daughter of this gracious, powerful, wise God. You are a son you are a daughter beneath a father who made you that son and daughter and then says, and I give you grace today, be at peace. And tomorrow, there'll be more grace, so be at peace. And next week, grace and peace. You are a son, you are a daughter of a gracious and merciful and powerful and wise God. And actually, this is more important for where the book goes. And you are a brother and a sister in that family beneath that God. So the first. The first piece of that is, I am a son. I am a daughter beneath this father. And the second piece, which I want to say is actually more important, is that, and I am a brother, a sister. I'm a fellow. I belong in an hour. I'm one of a family. I'm a sibling. Which is, again, 
obvious from the analogy deliberately created by God of human families. We, we know that if you're in a human family, you're a brother or sister in a human family, you've got the, the wonderful blessing of looking up at a parent who, by God's grace, cares for you. And then you also know, I am my brother's keeper. I am. And we all know that. If you've got two kids, you've got, a, you've got a boy and a girl, you're a parent, you've got a boy and a girl, both of them sitting on the couch, and the girl, she's younger, she rolls off the couch and bonks her head on the floor. And the brother, wailing, keeps watching TV. It could be that he's insensitive, he's a boy. <laughs> but we know that's wrong. We're going to say to him, did you help her? Right? I mean, you maybe don't know what to do, but go get mom or dad. Or say, are you all right? Or, or, or something. Don't just say, glad it wasn't me. <laughs> I get to, would you? Psh, psh, I'm trying to listen. Mom's going to get mad at you for that blood. <laughs> no. We know. There's this, too. We are not just spokes on the wheel. The wheel has a, has a rim. There's connection this way as well. That's obvious from our own families. And it comes from this passage, too. It's why Paul put all these people here. So how he put them here is he describes them as brother and sister and, and beloved fellow this and our that. But he also very subtly is making this point of the family this way by the fact that all these folks are listed in what is a personal letter. I am Paul, and I'm talking to you, Philemon. I am Paul, I'm talking to you, Philemon. And as you can see, this is really a very personal, private letter. So this is me talking to you, but I want you to remember that it's as if we are all having this conversation together. All of us. It's normal that we all would have this conversation together, men and a woman, apostles and ministers and lay people, a whole group of us, church included, because we're an us, we're a family. So of course, we are having this conversation together. I mean, really, it's you and I, but we are in the middle of a we. I think, I have to say I think, because I'm a, I'm a thoroughgoing American white product of my generation. So I think that some other families from some other cultures instinctively get this a little bit better. I think. Other cultures, families in other cultures, I think, better understand this point being made here, that we all make our individual decisions in the context of a group. We at least Caucasian American culture, love our individualism. And there is certainly a sense in which God is concerned with the individual. But that can sometimes make us blind to the sense in which God is concerned about the corporate, the whole family. And some other cultures maybe grasp that a little bit better. As a sibling in a family, you never make any purely private decisions. 
We're supposed to function as a family unit, keeping in mind always that even the personal and private decisions I make have, have an impact. Bo Schembechler, former University of Michigan football coach, beloved and hated depending on who you root for, is known for a lot of things, one being his emphasis on the team. You have a famous quote, you can find this anywhere. No player is more important than the team. No coach is more important than the team. The team, the team, the team. We all, he says, we all need to think about, to think like this, how will my particular action impact my team? Yeah. I have a particular action. Sure. I've got a role. I've got a place. I am a me. But how is it going to impact my team? That's what's behind the lining up of all these people here. Paul's kind of bringing in, I'm going to talk to you, but seated here is Apphia, seated here is Archippus, seated over here is the whole church, seated back here is Timothy. I'm going to talk to you, and they're all listening in. I'm going to have a request to make of you in front of all of them. That's not coercive peer pressure. That's the truth. I want to remind you, this impacts all of this. We are in us. So I got a question, and you're going to have an answer. We're going to have a thing here, but that's going to mean something for all of this. Don't forget that, Philemon. Because we are a family, and I need you to think about the family. I need you to think about how is your decision going to impact all of this, and what does all of this mean for your decision? We're part of a body, and we must think as a whole family. This is who we are. So, do you think of the church like that? Do you? I already admitted, I come from a certain cultural background, a certain mindset that I'm much more accustomed to thinking about the individual than the corporate. Probably most of us are. This is going to push us in the other way. There's something here that's about the corporate, the family. So how do you think of the church and of your place and role with it? With all these brothers and sisters, your fellows. Is the church your family? Is it your team? Is it your, your band of brothers, sisters? Or is it like the grocery store or the mall, some place where you go by yourself to pick up something you need for your life that you're going to live somewhere else? Which is it? It's clearly supposed to be one way. We, we are an us. God formed the church as a family, which he loves and he cares for, and he wants us to think about and, and act in accordance to, to that 
idea, not, not the idea that we make up, but the idea that God had when he made the church. He wants us to act that out. That's what's going to lead us to the second observation. Before I go there, though, I'm a little worried maybe the last part of that ended a little bit hard. I don't mean that to end hard. There is is maybe a bit of correction there, but there's supposed to be something about this whole point that is, yeah, a family, right. And the accountability, the responsibility too, you know, this way, that's, that's actually good. It's a blessing when I have that. I want to be kept by a brother and I want to be my brother's keeper, yeah. So that shouldn't be, I don't leave that hard. I want to leave that as like, yeah. Yeah. You are a, a, a son and a daughter, and you are a brother and a sister, and yeah, that's good. It's what you want. But the second point faith and love on mission makes the family life of the church what it is meant to be. Faith and love on mission makes the family life of the church what it is meant to be. So the church family exists, and we, we acknowledge that, and it, that's not really much news to any of us, I think. But then the question is, immediately, so, so how do we experience the family life? Because frankly, when I mean, you talk about it, and the experience is sometimes, sometimes there's something lacking there, if we're honest. So how do we, how do we grow in that? How do we grow in the experience of the family like it's supposed to be? Philemon and the saints gathered around him, they were experiencing what we're after. Paul reveals that in verses 4 to 7 as he prays, first giving thanks and then making a request. So he's praying with regards to Philemon. I'm constantly praying, thankful for you. For what? Verse 5. Because I hear that you have love and faith towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. So there's the first two of Paul's common Faith, love, and hope triad. We saw that in Colossians. You see it in various of his other letters in different combinations, different ways. But he puts it here. He writes it carefully in a particular way to point out something to us, tell us something. Like we've seen before, faith is meant to be paired with toward the Lord Jesus, and love is paired with toward all the saints. That's how it was in Colossians chapter 1. It matches the next couple of verses. But he writes verse 5 in a noteworthy way. Love for the saints, if you look at it, is first and last. And in the middle, being pointed to, is faith towards Christ. Faith, trust in, dependence on Christ. That's in the middle. So what you see on the outside is love of the saints. What you see on the outside is like verse 7. Philemon refreshing the hearts of the saints. So there he is. He's, he's acting like a true brother, loving them, refreshing them. So this is the family life that 
that we want, that the church is supposed to be like, Philemon is, is that. He's experiencing that. He's expressing that, loving and refreshing. We don't, get, we don't get many details here. I think if we wanted details, we should look back at, maybe jot this down, Colossians 3, maybe verses 12 and following. Paul there talks in Colossians 3 about put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So there, Paul's telling us what he thinks the family is supposed to look like. Put on then compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, bearing with one another and if one has complaint, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, so you also must forgive. And over all these, put on love. Binds it all together in perfect unity. That's Paul's vision of the proper church life. That's Philemon. That should be us too. So we read those and we get it. Yeah, sure. Okay, there's some words that are fleshing out what this, what this love of the saints, this refreshing of the saints might look like. Compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. So, pause right there. First question to ask ourselves, there's the church family. There's the church family supposed to be like. Are you bringing that to the church family? Or are you expecting it to come from the church family? We're supposed to bring that to, not just expect that from. Several times I have had conversations with, with folks that I think unwittingly miss this point. And the conversation always begins with a complaint brought to me about how the church family is not loving them well enough. It's not giving to them in ways that they need. And often what comes out of that is really the person I'm speaking with is not approaching the church family to give in this way, him or herself, themselves. That is not to let the church family as a whole off the hook. It's to, it's to put the question in front of us each individually. Yep, there's a church family. Yep, that's what it's supposed to look like. Are you sitting in the spot of complaining the church family isn't that? Or are you working to bring it yourself to the church? The expectation is for us, each of us, to give this, not just to get it. To give it. Not just theoretically, to actually be a people who are who engage with others in the family are other brothers and sisters who give them compassion and give them kindness and, and give them meekness and patience and forgive and forbear with them. That's what we're supposed to be, not just to receive, but to give. So where does that come from? It's got to come from somewhere. Where does it come from in this text, the same place it comes from in Colossians. 
That's why Paul wrote this deliberately like this. With the above and below, you've got the, the love of the saints, and in the middle, you've got the faith towards Christ. He's trying to point us this way. Here's where it comes from, which is exactly the place it comes from in Colossians. Colossians 3.12 comes from Colossians 3.1-4. Set your mind on things above where Christ is, where your life is, and see him coming, and see him when he, when he comes bringing to you life. Or simply put here, faith towards Christ Jesus. Trust in Christ and faith towards Christ and belief that what I have coming to me from Christ is life enough. I can then give life away. I can approach this family as a giving brother and sister. I can approach this family and give to them compassion. I can forgive them as I have been forgiven. I can give to them grace and give to them peace. Because I have that coming from him and I trust this one, this Jesus. That's, that's the solid core upon which the, the loving life of the church gets built. A faith in Christ that's, that's at its core solid. So you can wind that backwards and say, so then lovelessness actually is faithlessness. Selfishness is unbelief. Self-focus and self-serving and grudge-holding and pride and harshness and impatience, me and mine and my agenda, that, that kind of an attitude, it is unbelief. It's a denial of or at least a discounting of this Lord Jesus and this Father God, it's saying he has not poured out on me the grace and peace that I need. I have to go get it myself. He said it, but I don't believe it. I have to go get it myself. So when we bump into a church or when we find ourselves struggling to give to the church body, when we bump into a church or a person that is not experiencing this family life of love that God intends, the problem really, first and foremost, is about faith in Christ, not lovelessness. You follow that, that's important. Because if I say to you, are you giving that to the church? And you say, you know, you're, you're right, I'm, I'm not. I'm expecting to get that from, but I'm not giving that. I better try harder to give that. That's not what I want you to do. I, I don't want to lead you that way. It'd be misleading. I want to say, I'm not giving that. Oh. Before I try to give that, where's the faith in Christ whole that I need to fill? Where, where have I missed the... the the piece that's in the middle, the foundation upon which this would sit, faith towards Christ, that's what to attend to first. That's what's to attend to first. We need to grow in faith first. So how does that happen? What would lead to more faith that would then lead to the love, the, the giving of this life and the receiving of this life from this, this changed, believing body. Where would that come from? Well, we want to know that. Lots of places it can come from. Colossians 3 tells us 
Set your mind on things above. Reflect on, on what God has done for us in the gospel and what he's bringing to us in the future. Yes. We've also talked about look around at the grace that God has poured out in life and grow in thanksgiving. Yes. To see all that God has given in the gospel and in the world already. Yes. But here, Paul puts down one more thing that is maybe a little interesting. Not instead of, but in addition to those other things. Paul leads us in one particular way in verse 6. He's going to ask God for something in a, in a request. And the exact translation of this verse is tricky. I, I read it one way, but depending on which translation you have in front of you, you might have some slightly different wording. I'm going to try to make the meaning clear without getting lost in the weeds. But verse 6 has, has some weeds. Begins, and I pray that the sharing of your faith, let's stop right there. In our modern lingo, when we hear sharing your faith, we often think of evangelism. That's not what he means. The word behind sharing is the same word in verse 17, it's behind the word partner. He means sharing in the sense of partnering with. So we've got sharing or joining in with or partnering with or a joint participation. Remember, Philemon, in faith, is a fellow worker. So what Paul is asking here in this prayer is that God would, would answer his prayer and would work in Philemon through his partner work, through his fellow working, and would use that for something. Back in verse 6, that it would be effective, that fellow working, that, that sharing, it would be effective to tell you, Philemon, all that you have in Christ, for Christ. So Paul's getting at in verse 6, that you would have a fuller and deeper picture of all of the good things that God has given you, has, has provided for you, so that when I say grace and peace to you, you like really get it. Oh, yeah, I understand that, but now, yeah, I, I see it. Grace and peace. So that would grow in you. That would grow in you a dependence on this God who has given you everything you need because you would see it more clearly, that you would trust it more deeply then because there it is. All that he's given me, he's trustworthy. So he's praying, kind of boil it down, that a cycle would get created here. That you and your partnership in this in this co-laboring, would come to experience all of God's gifts and then would see him as very trustworthy then because look at all that he's given you and then you would partner more deeply, having more faith and you would see more of his gifts and you would see him even as a deeper and greater and wider and wiser provider and you would trust him more deeply and so on. That's what he's praying for. Not just by reading your Bible, not just by praying, not just by looking at the gracious things that God has given you, but by engaging in the mission, partnering 
fellow laboring. All muscles grow by being exercised, by being stressed. The faith muscle is no different, if I can put it like that. I think if you, if you can stop and go back to a point in your life when you had an opportunity to share the gospel with some other person who doesn't know Jesus, or maybe an opportunity to give some of your financial resources to someone who was in need, or maybe you had an opportunity to, I gave away some of my time to help this person with some tangible physical need that they had, I made a sacrifice there in Jesus' name. If you can go back to one of those times in your life, I bet that something in you in that moment came alive. Something in you thought maybe it was just like, this is exciting. This is good. This is, yeah. Maybe even you thought, this is fun. I've had, that, I've had that experience a bunch of times in evangelistic conversations where I'm a little bit afraid on the front end and having fun on the back end. Because what happens in there is you meet God in some different way. You don't like learn more things about him, but you learn more things about him. You meet him in some different way. God encounters you in that mission, and your eyes are not only pulled onto him, but you're pull, it's pulled onto the beauty of and I know this stuff. I'm, I'm talking to my friend here about, about this life, about this kind of forgiveness, and he or she doesn't know it, but I do. It, it's real for me, and I'm experiencing the life of God, and I'm stirred and moved and excited by that differently than when I read about it that morning in my Bible. Differently. I know God supplies all my needs. I read it in the Bible. Sure, I get, I get that. But when you give it away... And then you find, and I'm actually provided for. Differently, you understand something about God and something that God is for you. And what Paul's getting at is, and that shows you all the grace that you have in God, and that's going to grow faith in you. And faith is at the core of this love for the saints. Faith is at the core of the body life that we're supposed to be about We engage in mission and we meet God differently. As our eyes are drawn onto him and our eyes see what he provides for us and our eyes are drawn off of ourselves and our own agendas. It grows in us then faith in this trustworthy God that then moves us to love the saints like we should. To love all people but especially the, the brotherhood. So where does the mission offer itself to you? I've got to be really brief with this here. We're out of time. Maybe review Colossians 4 and give it some thought. Colossians 4 talks about praying. It talks about being ready to give an answer. It talks about your speech with other people. But it's, it's about living aware of, living on the mission mentally and engaging with looking for it and engaging with it when it comes, praying for it to come and then engaging with it. Maybe review Colossians 4. Look for opportunities to be engaged in the mission because that's what is uniquely offered here by Paul 
as a way that God grows faith in us and then produces love from us. He's made us a family, which is a great blessing and a privilege, and it's a responsibility. God made us a people like this, and so he wants us to live it out. Not just sons and daughters, but brothers and sisters. Reflect what he is like with others, loving them and giving to them in faith from a great and generous God. Let me pray. Father, would you please help us, your people, to understand what you mean when you say we are your children? To understand the relationship to you and to one another and to the world. We look to you for this grace. We ask for it. Help us to understand, help us to walk in it, help us to love it, help us to rest in it. We're your family. You are our Father. So care for us. And Lord, now meet with us too. Even as we we take these communion elements here in, in hand now, help it to be more than just the thing we do in every first Sunday. Help it to be what you mean it to be, a, a time of of seeing in a physical and tangible way, seeing what it means for you to draw us near and and covenant to be ours. So speak to us now, minister to us now, I pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.